Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. Josh Bashong. And I'm Dana Zook. Josh, today we are going to talk about wheat variety selection, I believe, and kind of how a farmer goes about making that decision. I know we're getting really close to wheat planting here in Oklahoma. Who gets started first when it comes to wheat planting? Just the opposite of harvest. Uh, starts north and goes south. Harvest goes south and goes north. So. Yeah, that always messes me up. Yeah. I think <laughs> harvest down there starts earlier, so they'd start earlier. But I guess the, the hotter temperatures down there make them kind of hold off. Is there anything when I'm thinking about selecting wheat varieties that I should be concerned with when it comes to heat? Uh, when we're looking at dual purpose wheat or wanting some fall pasture, obviously we're looking at planting a lot earlier than a typical grain only. Uh, so we're looking at dual purpose planting anywhere from late August through September, uh, start getting to October, we start looking more of grain only options uh, down in November. So when we're planting early, we usually run into the hot soils. Hot soils usually make that wheat have a shorter coleoptile. And so we have some emergence issues. So if it's hot soils, we can't plant as deep, but usually when it's hot, it's dry. So we're chasing moisture. Uh, and as we made the shift in genetics going from standard varieties to semi-dwarf varieties, that's kind of went coincided together to have that shorter coleoptile. So we do have some resources, some fact sheets to look at those different comparisons on the varieties. If you are planting real early, you have hot soils and it is a concern of yours, you can look at those. And uh, But hopefully by the time you're wanting to plant, you already have your variety on board. But uh, that is one of the characteristics that we look at. Hot soil germination sensitivity as well as the coleoptile length. So we're only a couple minutes in here and you're already getting sciency on me. <laughs> so you said a coleoptile. For those of those listeners out there that don't know what that means, what what does the coleoptile do for the plant? That's that first sheet coming out of the seed. Uh, so it gets from the seed up to the surface where it can put out that sheath in the first leaf. Uh, so being a grass, that's the way we're looking at it. Uh, dicots or broadleafs up you see those two cotyledons pop out and unfold uh, so it's a little bit different but uh, most of the time with wheat we have a pretty good depth we can get to typically the smaller the seed the shallower you have to go but wheat we can usually get by with planting a little bit deeper uh, maybe as upwards of a couple inches but usually around that inch inch and a half is most of the time we're wanting to go as deep as so that's kind of a big difference for a lot of people in terms of whether you're not and you're in no-till or if you're in conventional till. Uh, I think about with conventional till, you're probably having to chase moisture and go a little bit deeper, but the soil is more loose. And then yeah. with no-till, your moisture might be closer to the surface, but you got a little bit firmer soils you're trying to push through. So kind of balance, that's a little bit of a balancing act, thinking about how deep you can go and what varieties you want to pur purchase for that. Yeah, always filled by filled. Uh, even in no-till, sometimes we have to go a little bit deeper to make sure we get those cultures to cut through all the residue. So, And then in conventional till, if you have a loose seed bed, 
we're going to be furrowing up. So you might have to look out for those heavy rains to silt in those furrows. And what you thought was a three quarters of an inch ends up to be an inch and a half, two inches deep. (laughs) So this conversation is developing a little more organically than I expected it to. But whenever I mentioned no-till, that also made me think, what kind of issues should I be worried about when it comes to residue management Thinking about weed on weed, are there any particular concerns that I should have in terms of variety selection? Do I, do I look at something that can handle tan spot or other diseases like that? What are your thoughts there? Tan spot's been the notorious one that we usually fight with transitioning into no-till systems. Uh, there are some varieties that do better, uh, but field scouting, fungicides uh, help, but we usually see more tan spot in no-till versus conventional till. Uh, we've having that previous crop residue, typically we're wheat on wheat, uh, for a lot of guys around here. So you get that continuous cycle of those diseases. So we also have usually more septoria. Some of our spotters, what we call them, uh, septoria and tan spot. And so they usually have more issues with those kind of that lower canopy diseases that we usually see in the spring. So if I'm... We can kind of start in the south and move north because that makes more sense in my brain. So I'm going to stay with that idea. Okay. If I'm if I'm down in the south and I'm thinking about growing wheat for for summer or for winter pasture, excuse me, and I'm going to run cattle out there, are there any particular varieties well suited to that area of Oklahoma that you'd recommend, or or maybe for all of Oklahoma when we're talking about our grazing grain varieties? Uh, just to hit on that grazing grain, uh, that's one of those terms that we developed here at Oklahoma State. Uh, where we selectively uh, bred varieties that can handle that dual purpose system of grazing and still producing a grain crop. But most of our varieties are well adapted throughout Western Oklahoma from Altus uh, all the way up north to North Central out in the Panhandle. But there are some that might do a little bit better down there. Uh, And then we probably have more of a criteria once we get out to the high plains and the Panhandle. Uh, And typically if we don't, if we have particular varieties that have some, say, soil-borne mosaic uh, susceptibilities, we might move them further out there uh, where it's less of an issue. But for the most part, most of our varieties are broadly adapted throughout western Oklahoma. But uh, there are some varieties, especially in that dual purpose, that were usually after that forage. So a lot of that's getting that fall moisture. Uh, sometimes we do see hessian fly planting that early down there. Uh, so that's been a critical a characteristic that we try to select when we're using that dual purpose system, especially in Southwest Oklahoma, because we don't really have a freeze to get rid of those Hessian flies. So for those people who aren't maybe familiar as much with Oklahoma, what is that difference in the high plains and the panhandle? Can you talk a little bit about the difference of wheat, you know, what you would select from that region? Uh, uh, the one instance I just mentioned was the soil-borne mosaic. It's a non-issue out there, so that's one reason why we can we have a nice genetic package and we might put it out there instead of downstate in western Oklahoma. But Because it's drier, yeah, right? Okay. Uh, nighttime temperatures and stuff like that. But okay. disease just isn't prevalent out there. Or it's not too prevalent in western Oklahoma for the most part, but it, it has been an issue in the past. Uh, out there, you are starting to look at some guys looking at irrigation. So we're looking at some more of that top yield. Uh, not as much dual purpose, I don't think, out in the panhandle. So more of those guys are looking at that grain only or they're reduced irrigation or more of a dry land. So they might be looking some more genetics from 
Colorado State University than Oklahoma State University. But uh, Dr. Brett Carver, our wheat breeder, has done a uh, a shift where he's made an effort to do a nursery out there to select genetics just for the panhandle okay. to cover our guys out there. Great. There's some big differences in soil types as we move farther west and get into the high plains. Less concerns about low pH, which is gonna, yeah. which is a huge plague for western and, and north central Oklahoma. So, with, you know, with most of our farms, we can't even think about planting a variety unless it has some uh, low pH tolerance. Can you go into what that exactly means with that variety and, and what makes a variety low pH tolerant? And we kind of sum it up as acidic soil tolerance, so low pH. We start getting down below that 6.5, down in the 5s and even 4s. We've made a effort to produce varieties that still yield on the grain side. Uh, often overlooked would be our dual purpose or grazing opportunities. Uh, just because a variety stated it's acidic soil tolerant or low pH tolerant doesn't mean you're going to get the same forage off of it. Uh, so... We all know forage doesn't always translate into grain yield, uh, but sometimes it does. But some of those varieties are going to be more tolerant, uh, still produce a decent amount of grain. It's not the solution, just like banding phosphorus with furrow. Uh, the main issues we have with acidic soils is aluminum toxicity because it becomes more free as the pH drops. And also we have a tie up in phosphorus. So we have more or less a phosphorus deficiency where we can alleviate like a band-aid, like I said, uh, with those infurrow applications, banding it right there with the seed, or even just a broadcast flat rate, or we'd have to up the rate a little bit more to get that benefit from the phosphorus. Basically trying to get the roots to get, get going, get down in some subsoil that's a little bit better on pH. Yeah, and every time you say band-aid, all I think of as an economist is money and dollar signs. <laughs> we're, we're putting out phosphorus to, to correct or to help mitigate some of the effects of that low pH. We're not correcting yeah. a thing. We're not just spending yeah. we're spending money just to kind of get by another year or we might increase seeding rate to try to make up for poor plant health. And then if it gets dry on us, those poor roots are also gonna probably affect the plant's drought tolerance and just everything comes into it there that that is gonna make your crop less vigorous. And when we're talking about you know trying to grow wheat for forage for those cattle, you may not notice it if you don't uh, have any kind of check to compare that to uh, your field might look green and might look fine because of these band-aids but you know really getting out there and seeing that that difference it'd be nice if you could just line through the middle of the field and kind of see the difference in that in that uh, forage production which you've probably been a part of some research that looks at some of that yeah there has been some research uh it's kind of before my time even mm -hmm. uh, so i i got some pictures and stuff to look at but it is night and day difference looking at those varieties that were touted as acidic soil yes there is some benefits to it but it's nothing compared to correcting it with ag lime or any other lime source to correct that ph uh, like i said the biggest hamper most guys overlook is that forage potential and like you said plant health goes a long ways it might look great but once we start to get into that dry conditions other stresses whether it be insects or diseases uh, just complicate things even faster uh, but having that good root system you're able to reach more moisture, reach more nutrients, and just have a healthier plant. So it's kind of like an enriched strip, but a in lime strip for something like that. Like, could you could you do something like that and kind of identify yeah. that? Would it work the same way? It'd be working the same way. We've tried some in the past, and hopefully, we'll get to some of that in the near future. Because uh, I've often 
past several years talking to guys said, well, I didn't get much out of my line. Well, they don't have anything to compare it to because they just did the whole field or they put it out right before planting. And obviously it takes a moisture to activate to get that line to change the pH of the soil. Uh, so you're going to need significant rain. You're going to need time to correct that pH. Uh, so it might take a year or two. And then by that time, it's starting to wear off as well. And one of the biggest, and I don't necessarily want this conversation to go completely about pH, but it's so important. I get a lot of talk about, I can't afford the lime. That's that's not something that I can afford to do if I'm renting year to year. I can't make that investment. But I would implore farmers to kind of think about just banding. So from your recommendation, if I want to ban phosphorus, how much phosphorus would I put out to make a difference? It'd be as much as 30, 40 pounds of product, like diammonium phosphate, 18460 or 10340 liquid. Uh, and we've seen as much, you know, 120 pounds or more, 150 pounds. And we're seeing that benefit. Uh, we've had some demos in the past where looking at uh, 60 pounds in furrow did just as good as 120 pounds broadcast because we're able to concentrate it right where we needed it. We're able to be more efficient with it. So when you say banding, Trent, I'm, uh, can you define that for me? Well, at least? Be, whenever you're sowing, you'd be putting that fertilizer right with the seed. Okay. Like instead of every, in every road, every square foot getting hit okay. with broadcast, you're just putting it right where you want it. Okay. So All right. So band, it's, you're not, yeah. you're not like, yeah, skipping anything. Yeah. You're just putting it right where the seed is. Okay. That's yeah. understandable. Which yeah. in wheat and small grains, it's pretty close and a couple of years are going to be even across, but you can definitely see it when you go to row crops. Uh, say someone's planting corn on 30 inch rows, they put some infro down. You might see it in that wheat crop the next year where it's a little greener. Mm, okay. They put 1034 down. Uh, that wider row space makes it look a lot more okay. dramatic. All right. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that. It's just yeah. familiar with the term. Yeah. But running 1846 or 1152 in row is pretty popular here. And that fertilizer can be anywhere from 40 to 50 cents a pound. So you're talking about putting down somewhere around 40 pounds. You're getting into that $15, $20 an acre range just for phosphorus that you're having to put out there to tie up low pH. Yeah. And the plant's not necessarily getting a benefit from it other than a Band-Aid for that low pH. So that's something I think, you think about that much money every year going out there just to correct that that kind of, I say, you saying correcting, keep putting <laughs> Band-Aid on that problem, accounting for that problem, uh, lime doesn't become as expensive. Now, another thing that people, I, I hear kind of, Make it, they make it tough to go out there and lime is whenever you take a soil sample and your pH is a 4.8 or a 4.9. And that, that uh, soil sample might call for three tons of lime. Do I get any benefit from putting out one ton of lime if that's all I really want to pay for? And once we get over that ton, we start looking at not putting out that full rate. Mm -hmm. uh, Reevaluate after we put out, say, a ton out. Uh, really see what kind of change we make because once we get it's logarithmic. logarithmic scale where we're looking at with pH. And so you're probably not going to put out three or four tons of lime. Mm -hmm. uh, biggest thing we've seen on correcting pH as far as economics go would be grid sampling and just putting out lime where we need it. And even like you said, if you had a pH came back at 4.9 or something like that, uh, we've seen looking at uh, other people's grid samples, it could swing two points either direction. So uh, we might be looking at a a three five to five five for the most part instead of that four five. And so knowing where to put it, not putting it where you don't want it. So you, some areas of the field still might be in that high sixes, even even in the sevens, pushing eight. 
another area of the field, same field, might be that upper to mid fours. No, but the lower you get on the pH scale, it's almost exponential how much more damaging each additional tenth of a percent can be (laughs) as you go down that scale. And I also like to tell people, if you can afford half a ton of lime, then put a half ton of lime, that's going to make a big difference just because we don't get back to six or six, five right away. It's going to correct some of that issue. And it, in my opinion, is probably better money spent than just focusing on banding every single year, trying to account for that. But yeah, and some of our best uh, grain only wheat varieties aren't necessarily low pH tolerant. So you might be kind of limiting your ability to make some of those good selections out there, depending on what you're wanting to do. It kind of limits the genetics that you're able to go after if you have low pH. Yeah. So what do you, um, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, Trent, you're probably going in a certain direction here, but you've had some really great presentations in the past about uh, grazing, what producers should think about how important it is to still use the right seed to keep the field clean before you plant. Like what are some of those things, just like the quick and dirty list of things, guys who are grazing um, or even a dual dual purpose field, what things they should think about um, to get the most forage? Cause weeds really don't do too much for your wheat forage, right? That's one of those misconceptions as well as it's growing the cows will eat it. What's the difference? Uh, but there's a little bit of data back uh, in Dr. Peeper's uh, day that showed just straight wheat out yielded stuff when there's bromes and stuff like that out there, cheat or downy or Japanese brome. But when we're looking at uh, guys that are wanting good fall winter pasture, uh, we're planting earlier to get that forage. So when we're planting earlier, we run into more issues with insects and diseases. Mm-hmm. And so we start looking at, you know, do we need a seed treatment? Uh, seed treatments are doing uh a lot of things for us because they usually have insecticide and a fungicide in them with them. Insecticide does great, has stuff for like aphids, so we might have less transmission of viruses, uh, but also it's going to have some other benefits. But uh, there might be a misconception that the seed treatments are going to help us with cutworms or armyworms, which really isn't the case. But uh, just having a healthier plant, we're probably able to tolerate more pest pressures. Uh, so having good seed wheat. Uh, a lot of guys are making transitions from farmer safe seed to certified seed. So they know they have good seed, good germination on it. Uh, usually when we're grazing, we're up in the seeding rate. Uh, usually the higher the seeding rate, the more forage production we can get out of it. It kind of tables off once you get, you know, three, four five bushels of the acre as far as the economics versus the gain potential on that forage. But typically uh, two bushels to the acre seeding rate, uh, is going to produce more forage than just that 60 to 80 pounds per acre. Uh, if you are in the market for a new grain drill, uh, there is research showing the narrow row spacing does produce more forage. I know as we get further out west, you see some wider row spacing just because it's less rainfall out there. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense for the grain only guys. But if you are truly wanting pasture off of it, uh, that narrow row spacing does produce more forage. Uh, but I want to go trading on drill off just because of that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and then, like I said, get out there scouting. Sometimes those worms can take out the wheat faster than and be ready to put out stalkers on so they can take out a stand. We've had guys have to spray two or three times, have to replant a couple of times just to get that up and going. And every time we're waiting to see what those do, it's another week, another week. And before we know it, 
we're pushing into fall and we're just not going to get that potential for that fall growth. So if we can get it up and going, there are some other products like Prevathon uh, that's going to get those Lepidopter, those worms. Uh, but we have to have some growth on that wheat before we spray a product like that. Uh, but we do have plenty of generic pyrethroids that can kill them. Um, the wheat doesn't have to be very big for spray uh, to get good control. When we're looking at weeds prior to planting. Uh, we can often talk about that green bridge. So mostly concerned about grasses, but even broadleaf weeds out there. If we have something green out there growing, it's going to be a harbor, a host for those insects, those cutworms. And that's just going to have them there waiting for the wheat to come out of the ground. So we want a green bridge destroyed before we plant wheat. We save at least two weeks, especially when we're talking about the wheat curl mite, uh, because that can transmit the wheat streak mosaic virus. Uh, those mites can't survive without food for two weeks. So that's why we usually have nothing green growing out there before we plant. That doesn't mean spray Roundup and then two weeks later go plant. We want two weeks of nothing growing. Uh, so <laughs> not just dying, right? <laughs> yeah, not just dying, but yeah. nothing out there. Uh, you'll still get some come off of the bar ditches and roads and fence rows and even neighbor fields, uh, typically worse in the southwest corner. But to hedge your bets, uh, if you're having to plant early for pasture, uh, be diligent about getting that crop off to mm -hmm. a good start. It's going to be where you make that fall forage. Now, Josh, we haven't been incredibly specific about varieties. What resources would you suggest that producers use to whenever they're wanting to pick out new varieties to plant on their farm? Uh, all the land grants in the Southern Plains have great resources. All have uh, excellent variety testing programs. Oklahoma State is no different. Wheat.okstate.edu. Uh, Dr. Silva's carrying on the wheat variety performance trials, so you can get that a report at the locations nearest you. You can look at other locations. Not all locations have the same varieties. Some have more inclusive, pretty much every variety, like Lahoma, Chickasha, uh, Altus, Goodwill. Uh, but there's most locations are going to have the predominant varieties in that area. So go look at those, uh, see what management practices they had, whether it's no-till, dual purpose, uh, see if it's more like your system, because you don't want to be picking something that was planted early and you're planting late just for grain only. Uh, so look at those. Lahoma uh, station, we have every variety. I think there's 40 of them last year. Uh, it's usually 40 to 50 something varieties there with and without a fungicide at flag leaf. Uh, so we see the difference there on varieties having that built-in resistance to stuff like leaf rust and stripe rust. Uh, so looking at those variety reports, uh, other publications like the Wheat Seed Book, it's usually out in the High Plains Journal, has a summary of all, all those uh, variety uh, testing locations in there. And then obviously a lot of the seed dealers have their own data uh, throughout the region on what varieties they're wanting to sell for what system they're wanting to put it in. Uh, they know their varieties better than anyone else because we can't test every variety. There's over mm -hmm. 100 out there, and that's mm -hmm. pretty messy for a trial to get any differences out of that many varieties. Well, we can put them in the show notes as, you know, Oklahoma yeah. State resources so they can find that there. So whether it be acidic soil tolerance, maturity, if you're wanting spring grazing, you want something that hits that first hollow stem late, uh, maturing early or late, uh, might escape some of those freezes. Uh, looking at those varieties, uh, 
for what you're wanting to use it for, dual purpose, grain only. OSU uses those terms, graze and grain, full dual purpose and grain yield. Uh, we also have now the grain or golden grain, sorry, uh, where we have excellent grain quality as well as good yield potential. And some of those are graze and grain and golden grain uh, traded varieties that are marketed through OGI. So obviously most farmers that are wanting to harvest wheat are after bushels, uh, but a lot of times things that the breeders have to incorporate are stuff like quality. So we have a buyer that's wanting our product in the area. Uh, there might be some protein quality premiums out there for you. Uh, but if we only go after yield and yield alone, uh, we might not have someone to buy it. The bases go sky high because no one wants to buy it. So it's one of those things, are you the only guy growing a, a sorry quality wheat, but yields a lot? Or are you everyone growing the same variety and end up in a mess? Yeah. Quality has definitely been a big concern in the past few years when it comes to exports. And that's what our price in the U.S. has always been struggling against is making sure we can find a buyer that, that we can compete with for good quality. So, But if it doesn't yield, farmers aren't going to grow it. So yeah. <laughs> that's a big balancing act where we get the bushels, yeah. but also have a product that the industry wants. That's a lot of good information. I know that almost all of our county educators are more than happy to talk about this just as much as we've talked with you today. And if they have any kind of questions or concerns, they can get a hold of Josh as well. And we can get you down the right path of uh, selecting a variety that'll work on your farm. So we, again, we thank you for joining us today and we hope to see you again next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with the educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again and we'll talk to you soon.